it has just been the case that from the beginning of time that there's the powerful and the people that they have power over. That contest is one that I've always believed in being a part of, and it isn't what's going to happen to the Democratic Party. We have an oppressive neoliberal order that's giving businesses and world capital like much more of an ability to crush people's hope and aspirations and lives. And like that's the fight. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mike Podhorzer. Mike won't need any introduction to most listeners of this podcast. He's recently stepped down as political director of the AFL-CIO, but remains active in the fight. You can find his Substack newsletter at michaelpodhorzer.substack.com. As a key person in the intersection of the labor movement and politics, an important convener of progressive operatives and leaders, as well as someone who's long pushed the use of data and analytics in politics, including in his work helping to found the Analyst Institute and Catalyst, Mike is someone I've been wanting to have on my show since the beginning. He has much to say about polling, politics, labor, and the right-wing threats to our democracy, and often challenged my assumptions and made me consider things from a different perspective. If you're interested in our country and its future, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Mike Podhorzer. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am just retired from the AFL-CIO, where I was in the political department for 25 years, including serving as political director, but I've been doing politics and progressive organizing since 1975 and have been involved in some way or other professionally in every federal election since then. Where did you grow up? Outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Was it a political family, a not labor at family? All. Not, not at all. No. Uh, parents, what did they do? My father worked as a travel agent, and my mother was first stay-at-home and then worked as a secretary in a medical office. So what was your path to becoming interested in politics and strategy and labor? Being alive in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, pretty, the, pretty, uh, pretty political time. Yeah. yeah. And my first memories were the 1967, 1968, which were you know years when the country was on fire, when so many things were at stake, civil rights, the war all of that. 
where were you in 67, 68? What Except were you doing? Boston, I was in school. I was in elementary school. But oh, wow. The, so, yeah. I remember being in, going to vote in 1972 uh, with my parents. I was probably seven uh, yeah. for, for McGovern. And my, my precinct was four to one for McGovern on yeah. the country. Uh, so I'm just a tiny bit younger than you, not that much. Yeah. How did you respond to those things, the social issues and other big changes that were going on in the country? What was right and what was wrong seems so plainly obvious. That's just what the time was. What was your education like in those early days? My education, I think that the world was my education. When I came to Washington, December 75, on a internship for December, but then was hired by the group I'd been randomly assigned to to intern for, and pretty shortly after that, you know, I was so consumed with what I was doing there that I didn't finish college then and just sort of where were, doing this. Where were you in college? Uh, Brandeis. And what were you studying? Uh, history and economics. And you took an internship during your time there? Uh, yeah, it was for the December break, 20, 1975. When, who did you work for during uh, that? Consumer Federation of America. Yeah. What is Consumer Federation? That's not like a... Nader type no, it's thing. not a Nader group, although it's certainly Nader adjacent in people's minds. The and worked when I was there from until 1980. Worked on mostly the same kinds of issues, and then in 1980, I ran a congressional campaign in Michigan, and then because it was 1980, it was not a very good year to break in as a Democratic campaign manager. I remember my mom crying. <laughs> uh, and then came back here and next work with uh, Citizen Action until the early 90s. And then when the politics within the labor movement started shifting away from the lock that the Meany Kirkland folks had on, uh, you know, anti-communism started to work with AFSCME and then came to the AFL-CIO after the Sweeney changeover in 1996. You've ended up being someone who's known for your interest in, in analytics and data and polling yeah. and things like that. When along that development did that first become something you, you were interested in? Were you I don't know, mathematically inclined person or statistically or? One of the interesting things that you'll find, certainly for people in roughly my age group who do, I don't know, roughly speaking, data or analytics or things like that, is that sort of the gateway drug was baseball and Bill James inserted the moment in the 70s when if you were in high school like I was and suddenly there was this completely different way of seeing something you were really interested in. And for me, it was the realization that a lot of questions that people argue about all the time, they're actually rigorous ways of trying to get at what the answer is. I think most people, unfortunately, think about data and analytics and what you're talking about in terms of things like the 538 forecast or 
that sort of thing. And I think that's a real problem because there are certain things that data analytics, whatever you're going to call it, are extremely useful for. But to me, the obsession with forecasting is actually very counterproductive and problematic for our politics and is consequentially misleading. I kind of land in the same place. I want to ask you just a couple things about yeah. what you just said, which intrigued me. Were you a person, for instance, who collected baseball cards? Did you know the numbers of, on things like that? Because I remember I would know, you know, Ty Cobb added 367 <laughs> lifetime, and I had a lot of baseball cards, and I knew what Roger Hornsby did or yeah. people like that. Was that part of your understanding of that sport? So going back to a particular moment in sort of the history of this, it was more that there was a game that board game at the time called Stratomatic. And what it did was you rolled three die and had card, um, not the kind of baseball cards you're talking about, but like a card for each major league player that season. It was sort of like right before you got to computers doing this. But basically, it was based on sort of binomial probability. And so if you like played the season, you'd get everybody performing it basically the way they did. It was also a way if you were sort of engaged in competing in it, right, and you did drafts and things like that, you really began to understand how lacking the statistics like batting average or whatever are for winning games. That was what I was much more interested in was from a practical perspective. You mentioned that you early on managed a congressional campaign. Yeah. What was that? And when you were doing that, to what degree were you thinking about the kind of numbers yeah. involved? Because I know people were mapping precincts and, and looking at voter returns right. and all that, but well before that. Yeah. So... It was outside of Detroit. It was a district that included part of Wayne County, Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor and Monroe and County. And so it was a real mix, you know, almost like Appalachian kind of demographics to University of Michigan to auto bedroom communities, things like that. And, you know, it was unfortunately kind of front row seat for the impact that Reagan had right in that community that's just been studied so much. Like Stan Greenberg's yeah. sort of studies. Yeah. I think you learn a lot about politics when you actually have to campaign or help a campaign or canvas or like be there. What what were you learning in that early well, campaign? Well, like I'd actually say that you don't know anything about politics if you haven't. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> and that's sort of why, to, like, the political discourse is so ridiculous, right? You know, I mean, because it's dominated by people who've never actually had to convince someone to vote for them or to put together, like, a coalition to win an election and have to actually talk to people. Who do you have in mind when you're describing Like basically people? almost everyone. I mean, it's the, especially among sort of the people who try to bring data to the conversation. Strategists. Yeah, I just in the, I'm talking about in the media. Yeah, I'm just people who've never like actually, and they may 
that some of them have been consultants to campaigns, right? But there's a way, well, a very dangerous way in which polling has allowed people who just look at polling and think they know politics to sort of make arguments that are ridiculous in the world. To pose as experts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the problem is that they're, they're experts in polling and data, but not politics. Who do you think are the experts in politics? I mean, to a certain extent, it's those who are successful, right? Um, although, like... Although you can be successful because of where you are. Here's one of the things that is like one of the more extreme examples, how something that seems so obviously logical and true is really not at all connected to how politics work, right? So there's this you know, this thing all about the median voter, that Democrats have to find the positions that appeal to the median voter. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? Because what it does is it seems irrefutable because when you hear it, it is you say, you hear someone saying, you have to get 51% of the vote, right? Which obviously is true. But what's missing from that is the fact that there is no actual median partisanship to go with that, right? I mean, it depends on what the issues are and what you care about and all of that, right? And so... Preferences you, aren't very organized. Right. You can't map them so that you have... You know, the folks who use this as a cudgel for their positions, like have never, even though they claim to be data scientists, never actually tell you who the median voter is because, like, you know, in early on, the Kenneth Arrow won Nobel Prize for showing that that's impossible to find, that it doesn't really exist. But a way to sort of see the difference, right, is whether you think elections are won because you find the thing that 51% of the district agrees with, or to make the math simple, you find something that 20% of the people really care about and something else that 31% of the people really care about. And they may or may not agree on the thing that the 51st does, right? And you look at Republicans for a long time, and they continue to win with people who really want lower taxes and government regulation and people who have the views on race and gender and all those things. And measuring their opinion on something else, this is how that works. I kind of think that this sort of median voter hypothesis or whatever right. maps pretty closely onto we should run moderate candidates. We should run candidates who are in the center because they on average will do better, particularly in districts that are purple, let's say. Is there something to that notion you see governors who are in the middle for both parties often have higher popularity ratings than than ones that you might position more ideologically on one end or the other. I don't think that's a law by any means, 
But I have some sense that there is an advantage in certain respects to making a lot of people think you're with them. Well, sure. Duh. You said there's a, you know, there's an obviousness to this, but. Right. But it depends on like how you do that. Right. And I think if you're in terms of whether it's better to run moderate or progress, whatever you're going to call it in a particular district, the piece of that conversation that is that is not unpacked, right, is that the reason studies that address this question look at races where there's a primary and there's someone who, one of the candidates is endorsed by the moderate group and one by the progressive group, and they look at how they do in the in the general election and they say, this is how many points, whatever. And what that is missing, right, what people don't understand when they hear that is that the mechanism for that being true is the primary itself. It's not necessarily the intrinsic moderateness or progressiveness of the candidates. It's that there is a fight about that, right? So that if you're in a Democratic primary, right, and you're the moderate, then all the advertising the progressive does that says you're too moderate is helping you in the general election because it's telling all the people who aren't Democrats that you it's it's validating you, right, in a way that you can't do for yourself. And vice versa. And the progressive ends up doing a little worse because the hope if they win the primary because the they've been attacked for being too left. But doesn't that translate into an advantage to for the but, moderate? I but mean, but here's the but here's yeah. the point. Yeah. Right. Sherrod Brown, Tammy Baldwin, they are not the median Ohio or Wisconsin politics, right? right? But both of them became senators without primary opposition, mm. right? If either of them had a moderate opponent, the voters in that state, understanding of who they are, would be very different because you would have your own partisans criticizing you for your positions and you don't get to define yourself. I understand what you're saying. So after that congressional campaign that yeah. we were just talking about, and you talked a little bit about your path through some organizations. Yeah. Tell me about landing at AFSME, which you mentioned. Yeah. Why there? What was your attraction to, to labor and what was your experience like? Well, I'd always thought that the labor movement was central to any real effort to make progress in this country. That first organization I was with, Consumer Federation, unlike Nader, was actually a coalition that included a number of unions. And the model for citizen action was creating local coalitions with local labor leaders and with members recruited through door-to-door canvassing. And so labor was a part of that, like through, was part of those organizations that I work with. And obviously, you run a campaign in southeastern Michigan, you're working with the UAW. So that wasn't like a change of philosophy or anything. It was, and then pretty much 
sort of circumstance gave me the opportunity to go there to do politics and then come here. What sort of skills had you developed by that time? What were the sort of things that you were hired for? Um, I should ask them. I don't know. The, probably for, you know, uh, um, was it political strategy? Yeah, was, I think, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good summary of it. Yeah. yeah. Where did you place yourself in our politics, if you had to say ideologically? What was home for you? Labor left. Labor left. Um, and still. Yeah. Yeah. So wh what did you do at AFSME? Basically just analysis. So you're working with numbers? Yeah. Yeah. And was that a rare commodity in those days? Yeah. Yeah. And numbers from polling, numbers yeah, from... Yeah, from everything, yeah. yeah. But but also to try to have strategy more informed by evidence and like, like thinking things through. Yeah. What were the circumstances of moving to this building that we're in right now at the AFL? Um, basically, Steve Rosenthal asked me if I wanted to do it, and I thought that would be a great opportunity because the AFL-CIO had really... In the 1930s and 1940s, through that period, labor was a much bigger force in the country because of the engagement and mobilization of working people. And in the Minnie Kirkland era, that really was let go of. And this was an opportunity to rebuild that power. I had Steve Rosenthal on the show. Yeah, uh, he's a pretty notable person in the oh, space. Oh yeah, he's great. Tell yeah. me what you tell me what you thought of him and what what did you learn from him? Um, the basic essential force of nature for that moment, and had a vision of what the labor movement could be that really transformed what the AFL-CIO political program. I'm proud to have worked with them and just still still very close you kind of moved up over time to political director here yeah tell me about what some of the highlights what were some of the big things that you were part of as you went along really a lot of what we're just saying is just watching the re-engagement of unions with members and building um just greater Volunteer engagement, more worksite communication, that sort of thing. My sense is that the 2004 presidential election was a big one for you and for the country. What was happening with you with respect to that race? Well, Steve had left and had started ACT at They're that point. Coming together, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure wh why you would distinguish that much from a lot of the other elections. Well, I had read that there was a lot that happened in that election that kind of leads you to Analyst Institute, that leads oh, you to some of the- That's uh, just that, temporal, yeah. the, not about the election. No, the, no the, in the early 2000s, um, there was you know, the, uh, one of these things where changes in technology um, changed politics. And the change in technology was that the cost and ease of working with very large files came down dramatically. And so we were 
really among the first probably in the country to build a national voter file and to do analysis of that. Within the AFL? Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the Allen Institute, it was that up until that point, you know, the way you knew something worked or not, if you in terms of mail or whatever you were doing, the way you knew if it worked or not is if the person you paid to do it told you it worked, which is nuts. But it really was the sort of idea of best practices on everything was driven by the consultants who won the last election. And so... If you won, you were good. If you lost, yeah, you were not. Right. Rather than, you know, with respect to how well yeah. you, you could right. have done given the actual yeah, but situation. Yeah, and also, and still does. And I think it's a problem for Democrats and progressives writ large is that it created a bias towards tactics and strategies for which there was a commercial business model. Yeah. Right. And yes. yeah. yeah. And and so that basically it's, you know, much easier to write a check to someone to do an ad to people than actually get on the phone and talk to people and do the sort of hard work of organizing. And there's no sort of profitable model there to market. And so it's a period where you have the um, tactics and strategies that are on the table to take advantage of are the ones that are profitable for someone. And that's a real problem. So what I did in 2003 was, as far as I know, the on, at least on the progressive Democratic side, first real persuasion RCTs. And that really revealed just how many misconceptions sort of best practices had. And to this day, a lot of the errors are still being made. But it really revealed and exposed just that if you're looking at data, it's so much clearer what's actually going on, you know? Plus, at that point, because as I was saying about data costs, for anyone who wasn't alive, it's kind of hard to imagine this was the case, but it was actually a fight to make the switch from precinct targeting to individual modeling. The, the micro-targeting only, revolution, yeah. yes. And the whole idea of having turnout scores or you know anything at the individual level. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the big changes. And Analyst Institute began as those of us who were really interested in exploring these other ways of looking at politics were getting together informally, and it eventually got to be so many people that it was worth its own organization. You probably know Mark Sullivan, who started the van, and one of the sort of steps along the way towards a national voter file that the party uses was his getting going in Iowa. At the time, there were like six or seven vendors that were all doing some number of states. Yeah. Did all that come to your attention along that? Oh, that of course. Way? I'm just curious, since I know those people, what did you observe about them and about that sort of process of the market sorting out who would be a winner and going on to a 50-state yeah. uh, model and so on on that? Yeah, but it wasn't really the market, it was the DNC. There were a couple cycles there where 
some of the companies, their software wouldn't stay up. Others right. did better. The DNC had to make a decision ultimately about who, right. who was actually going to function under the exigencies of a real election. Right. I think that, and I want to be really clear, that it's not about Mark, who's a friend and was doing important work there, but more about the way in which technology was adopted at that point, which I think we're seeing play out now really with, you know, the, the you know, where Ban went, right, is that the, I believe that throughout that the progressive community, that labor and so on, should build, develop, and own all of that stuff separate from a commercial market. That the that when you put together like all of the unions and everything else, like we should have something that we own that is developed to meet our needs, not a broader markets and all of that. And I think it was there were some areas where that happened and that was great. And there are other areas like this where for folks who aren't aware, like eventually Van was sold to private equity. Their normal private equity actions are wreaking havoc for a lot of groups. And like, yeah, you depend on people you have no accountability with and eventually it's going to bite you. That seems to be the conventional wisdom right now. There was a recent article about that, for example, yeah. when Bonterra laid off some right, people. Right. I, I'm not confident from the people I talk to inside that the people who work on it aren't still just as committed to the party. But I understand and have thought all along that theoretically it would be nice for the party and associated entities to control their own destiny. Yeah. Right. It's also been clear along the way that those are difficult places to build software successfully. It's one of these things where what has evolved isn't the way it had to be. And there no, are a lot of Catalyst. It, Catalyst is Catalyst like, is was was very intentionally built on a different model. Yeah. Not everything about that worked perfectly, but they're an ongoing institution that has made a big contribution. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think of you as is a political entrepreneur. I've talked to a lot of people in the space who I think of that way because you've been part of starting these important institutions. What do you think are the qualities of somebody who is a strong political entrepreneur in the progressive democratic space? Uh, it's a hard question to answer because I think that for the most part, the be it like entrepreneur is like building a company and or nonprofit or, you know, or like, nonprofit, yeah. but still one of the structural challenges that progressives face and really is one of the reasons why have only sort of been in the labor movement or labor adjacent is that it is a, it's first of all, like by very large orders of magnitude, the largest, has the most power and weight of things in, on the progressive side, even though the mainstream uh, doesn't really acknowledge that. 
at all, right? I mean, like you just look at all the people who talk about not what working class voters want, who never have worked and who like would never listen to union leaders who actually like have organized 15 million people who like pay dues. Um, the labor movement right funds itself and that's different from almost everything else in the progressive space and that makes a difference in terms of political entrepreneurship because I was very lucky to be here and have the ability to think past every two years and to be responding to sort of yeah, like neoliberal market forces, right? But to understand what was needed and to have a stable place to do it from. So what did it take to found those two organizations to fit them into the ecosystem? They just needed to be done. And once you started doing them, they generated and supported their own success. Analyst Institute, how is that kept afloat? From... A combination of um, grants and uh, fee-for-service and, yeah, that sort of thing. But it's a very low-budget thing. For those people who don't know what that is, can you explain? The Analyst Institute? Yeah. yeah sure. So the Analyst Institute is uh, started in 2007, and the idea was that as I was saying earlier, that people who were doing campaigns or whether election or progressive, whatever, you know, basically uh, were going to vendors to do different pieces of it or trying to figure out how to do what they were doing. And so the idea was to take advantage of something called RCTs or random control trials, where you can set up for certain tactics experiments, sort of in the same way that the FDA does. Like that is sort of the basis for, you know, the what we have best practices in the rest of the world. You can't really tell unless you have like a double blind random study yeah. in medical right. work whether or not. Right, the drug the, works right, or not, right. comparing and, it to placebo, all of the, the yeah. that's the science behind right. telling whether something works or not. In the right, world. and that's the basic idea of the Analyst Institute was um, looking for ways to find out rigorously whether certain things worked or not. And that had a lot of appeal and still does. And it was, again, something that I'm like proud of and I think... Uh, um, is important because if something like that had been done privately, then you would like not have a real confidence in it being a good faith effort, uh, good, you know, not, uh, good faith studies and everything. It'd be to someone's advantage or whatever. And because it, you know, it's not profit making or anything like that, it's a place where a lot of organizations are comfortable sharing with each other. I'm friends with Aaron Strauss, who was yeah. executive director there for a while, and I admire a lot of things that happen there. I think 
the critics of work coming out of there and more yeah. broadly often feel like some of the findings are kind of brittle and that we, when we apply them in the real world, we may overuse a particular rule of thumb. An example that's come up a lot has been, I think it was probably in 2016, like we're going to make a plan to vote or things like that. And, and rather than being able to have canvassers flexibly move into persuasion when they needed to, they were you know, doing something kind of by rote, by rule. What do you think about that criticism and how what they do fits with yeah. reality? So the challenge that those who look at the results of what the Analyst Institute does is that random control trials um, not in politics, in medicine, in almost every area, find certain questions much more tractable than others. And the danger, which we, the Analyst Institute very actively screams this, right, is that it is reflecting the effectiveness, the full effectiveness only of tactics that can be fully measured. Right, but there are lots of tactics that are not that tractable, right, to RCTs. And unfortunately, some people, um, without thinking, discount them because, like, they don't like show up with a good RCT. To be maybe clear, if you shift this to medicine, if you want to see how effective a drug is at treating an ailment right, could really it is the best possible way to do it because the particular medicine is administered individually to patients and you can study the reaction, right? And so you can get a lot of money going into pharmaceutical companies because you can do these tests, right? Much harder to do an RCT on investments in public health or in like education about obesity or those kinds of things that are the actual big problems in the country that are killing us, right? And so it's the same kind of thing here. Like the certainty that certain kinds of treatments give you because they're individual, they can be measured, skews the allocation of resources, right? But the Analyst Institute itself says that. We try to have a real sort of, you know, uh, warning sticker on on all these findings, right? And so, like, the thing that, like, is probably one of the most tractable questions, which is, say, mail for turn out, for get out the vote, right? Because it's just like the pill, right? It goes to one person, you know, who it is, and the results are on the voter file, right? Very easy. And the results there are not brittle at all. For the last 15 years, you do the studies, you get pretty much the same result every time. It's replicable because it is the epitome of a tractable question. On the other hand, if you want to see how effective digital ads are at GOTV, it's impossible to know the full extent of it because they're administered socially 
and individually, right? So if you're just measuring the individual effects, you're not really giving it its full due. I, I sometimes think about sort of the difference between, I don't know, the prose of politics and the poetry or the strategy and the tactics. I wonder sometimes when we, if we get too bound up in the tactical, it, you know, which is important, like raising right. some value, as opposed to like thinking about how a leader can communicate and change what the agenda is right. or all of those things are are the most important things about politics right. right and a lot of times it feels like there's a disconnect between the the analyst and i don't know that philosophical level yeah and that gets to what we were talking about earlier in it terms does. of like who gets a voice in the conversation about what politics should be about. And, you know, the the sort of analogy what we're just talking about on RCTs is on polls, right? Where right, we've reached this really terrible cul-de-sac where the only way in these conversations you can say your position is right or wrong is what you see in a survey which is crazy it's exactly analogous it's it's like you have to be able to use judgment still you right. still have to understand things in a human way as right. well as yeah ad- but adapting also measurements but you want but you don't want to do things just by feel like the gurus of old either right right but this this that uh, it's a not is in a dichotomy there's there's something else there right so the the value of uh, RCTs and what the analyst institute did originally, right, and why it came out of a practitioner space was because, as you know, in the political department and everything, um, like I had to send a mailer to union members to get out to vote, right? And this was the way to make sure that whatever that was going to be, it was going to be the most effective piece of mail. But I never made the mistake that pretty much has become the norm to think that that I could understand politics working up from what worked in an RCT. Right, which is the same thing people do with polling. Right, they think that politics works because of what works inside of a poll. Right, that's the problem. Right, the problem isn't right. If I want to do as a practitioner a particular mailing or try to understand a particular um, task, I have to do better. Polling is indispensable because it's a way of getting some kind of idea of how the money I'm going to be spending no matter what can be used most effectively. The problem is letting that tell me what I should be doing, right? And that the, and telling me that that's how people make up their minds. One of the practices that's developed mostly in the last few years is sort of message testing using science and using the internet, using the data, using tools that are now available to do things, 
easier than they used to be. I'm not clear if you can get to the most fundamental things or not. It's not my, by any means an area which I have expertise on. And I've talked to people who've impressed me with what they can do. But like, what is your attitude towards working in politics through that kind of lens? Doing it is necessary, but um, is not even close to sufficient. When sort of left to be autopilot, it will always crash into the mountain, basically. So here's one of the early things that like, really captures what's wrong with the incompleteness. That's the best way of putting it. The incompleteness, which is the problem with polling. In either late 2003 or 2004, when we were doing what still is kind of a traditional message test, trying to understand what the best arguments were against Bush. One of them was, you know, that he's going to privatize Social Security, right? And since we know, like from surveys and talking to people, that Social Security is like third rail, that that is something no one wants to have happen, right? And so when we did RCTs on it, right, really didn't do much of anything. And then when Bush was reelected and actually proposed it and started doing it, it like completely mobilized everyone. And what it points to is the words we say about something are less important than what people believe is true. And a and, lot of times what they believe is true is has to do with what actually is happening in the real right, world. Right, right, <laughs> right. And that when you think the only thing that's out there is what the words you can put in a survey, right, then you don't understand that the monster variable is to people think that's actually a threat in this case, right? And you saw this last year with Dobbs, and, and this will illustrate sort of the how really incomplete polling is. So definitely a theme for you. Yeah, the that for year and but to be clear, it's absolutely essential to use instead of just like your gut. You should be the master of it, not letting it change your thinking. But so for years, as you know, the polling told us that. Um, abortion wasn't an issue that people should go near, right? And part of it was because we did surveys and you said, well, you know, some version of if Roe is overturned, right? But people are terrible at predicting how they would react to something they don't actually believe is going to happen. It's not just in this instance, but in everything. We're just not reliable about that. And so, we're even less reliable in predicting how we're going to react to the thing we don't believe is going to happen when it happens and the people around us go crazy over it. And so you're sitting there at your you know, computer taking this survey. What do you think if Roe, da, da, da. And then it happens and you know, your family or your best friend, whatever, like, suddenly says, you realized all this, and suddenly it's the issue that changes the election, right? But people wouldn't go near it because the polling said it won't work, yeah. right? It makes politics an awfully hard place to be a strategist. 
because right. things are not that predictable. Some right. things are predictable and some things really are. Right. Yeah. Society changes. Yeah. yeah. For years, you've been convening people, convening people in the progressive movement. Yeah. Generally to talk about these kind of matters. Who have you discovered to be the people who are thinking about this the way that you most think works? And what have you learned along the way by those convenings? I mean, the, there are so many people that probably most of the folks listening have not heard of who make enormously important contributions. Listing any of them would exclude many of them and it's not worth doing. But I think the most important part of it is that hopefully I'm making some contribution to people realizing how much they have to gain by working with each other and how much more can get done in this community when people are building on each other's work rather than sort of just being heads down and trying to solve the same problem in a different organization. There is a substantial right-wing authoritarian MAGA Republican threat that we face, that you were a pivotal part of fighting off in 2020. What is that threat? How would you characterize it? What are you most worried about? Well, that they're fascists. You know, it's a bona fide fascist movement that is set to undermine the country the rest of us want to live in. And unfortunately, our information systems make that less obvious than it should be and makes it more difficult for people to understand like that this threat has just been like escalating all the time. I mean, Trump seems to have finally fully demonstrated with January 6th that he wasn't willing to do what presidents are supposed to do, which is abide by the results of an election. That's a sin against democracy. That's not forgivable, right? Do you see that as inhabiting him personally, or do you see that having tentacles out to the DeSantis's and the other potential leaders of that party? How, how bad is it outside of Trump and his peculiar notions and personality and so on? Trump is the expression of that perspective that goes back to the founding of this country. MAGA is just the latest brand name for um, the, this is the, the... This is the Confederates. This yeah, is the, right. This is... Yeah. Right, and, and, it, and one of the problems is that, that people interpret it as being Trump. And that's not that. Just he just makes it easier to see and understand. Well, but it, it's kind of hard to imagine another president coming out of that party pre-Trump who would have done what he did around pushing an insurrection. One of the challenges in understanding the threat that we face is that. The stories we tell about what is happening always affixes itself to 
the dramatic person, the person who's like right on the stage. The reason Trump is on the stage is not because he's Trump and has found something that no one else could see. It's that a third of the country is basically not accepting of liberal democracy. And that third has been successfully harnessed by the Fox and right-wing media world and by the evangelical churches. And we have a political system that basically now so exaggerates the power of those forces that they have uh, an iron grip on this. And to be clear, it's not that we are inevitably in this weak position, right? A lot of historical accidents here. But you go to November 2008. I'm sure pretty much everyone who was around then that's listening to this remembers that as one of the high points of their political life when Barack Obama won. Right. Someone and, else's low point, though. Yeah. yeah. But the, the important thing that many people still don't see, but certainly even like the never Trumpers didn't see, was that the other thing that happened that election night, which was that McCain graciously conceded and not only conceded the legitimacy of it, but began by talking about what an important step forward it was for the country to have finally, in his view, overcome the stain. And what wasn't understood at the time, unfortunately, and I'm including myself and not understanding it, was that the Tea Party was as much a movement against rhinos as it was against Barack Obama. And purging the party of its right, moderates, but, right? Of, of I, oh. not just moderates, of of the elements in it that were believing in sort of the legitimacy of liberal democracy, and right, this is a more theocratic part of the country, and so the first big historical accident for them was that. The very next election, the 2010 election, which was going to be a terrible election for Democrats because the midterms, all of the different things, it wasn't just the usual like tide coming in and out. This time, the tide brought in people who were right. powered by Tea Party fury. They, they got a lot of people in, and they got it during a redistricting time. Right, and exactly. That's right. Hold state right. legislatures right. for a long time and use redistricting to move things their way and things right. like that. Right. Yeah. And but it's more than that if you understand like the 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 broader sort of what I call sort of the coalition against the 20th century, right? Which is the sort of what's getting more attention now, which are on these, quote, social things, which I really think are just basic civil rights. But predating that was just all the business interests hacking away at the New Deal order. And those come together in the Federalist Society, right? And the other aspect of the t Democratic losses in the 2010 election, you have one of them very 
much correct, which is the way in which they locked into the cycle that redrew the lines and therefore could gerrymander themselves into unassailable majorities in these states. But the other thing is it changed the dynamic with the Supreme Court because once it became clear that Democrats were never going to get back to 60 and that the Republicans were no longer going to be interested in substantial bipartisanship, Supreme Court was let loose because there was no way that they had to worry about any of their decisions being overruled, which actually has been a much more common thing that people understand throughout our history. We kept fixing the Voting Rights Act whenever they pushed it back until recently. Right. But the thing is that it made them completely unaccountable. And it basically opened the door for what we've seen them do for this entire period. I've read books and talked to a number of people like Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who, yeah. who said, suggests that like Trump was running the authoritarian playbook that has happened around the world. And when you talk about a certain percentage of our country, a third or something, yeah being receptive to that or maybe being aligned with that. There's something in me that flinches from that a bit. Besides them being attracted to this guy, each for their own individual reasons, and besides the fact that like historically we have had conservatives or reactionaries, and what makes you think that they are unavailable to reason or to democracy? What is it about these people that we're sure that they are that type that you've sort of put them as? One of the challenges when the conversation gets to this point is that we're so unused to adding the what the ways in which like our institutional arrangements and the Constitution and all of that sort of affects the the way things actually happen in the world. Coming back to the problem with polling, right, is that the basic unit of sovereignty in this country is places, not people, right? The people more or less get to decide who represents them in a place, but it doesn't matter what the percentage of the country that thinks X is, it depends on what the percentage of jurisdictions that think that. Right, the electoral and, college, the, right. the but, house districts. Right, the, but even beyond, even if the electoral college didn't have a bias, it's problematic, right? Because so let's say you have um, an issue in which the country, like the all 300 or 250 million uh, voting age population, is evenly split on. So if you have a national vote on it, right, then you're probably going to come somewhere in this sort of hypothetical middle, right, where people are trying to figure out how to get somewhere that everybody kind of is willing to agree with it. Now, let's just assume that you take, say, 100 million people that live in this country and and say that we're going to make three states, one where 
it's 60-40 for this policy, one where it's 60-40 against the policy, and one where it's 50-50. So all the people who live in two of those countries, it's not a controversial issue. And all the people who get elected in those two countries have to be committed to that country's position on the issue. Right, have to be committed. You can't compromise because if you do, you go back and get defeated in the election because 60% of the people don't agree with you. And you have this like other country that's 50-50 and you're letting that decide everything and that's the recipe for disaster we have here, right? So when you think about what your question about is there no one who's reasonable, right? When you look at the 23 or so red states, right, the even though it feels like we're at 50-50 nationally, Trump won those states by an average of 16 points. There's not a world in which you're moving them 10 points, right, to actually change how They're basically the people, uncontested. Right. You're not changing how those senators and representatives show up to actually make policy. That rigidity makes it sort of, a, 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 you know, the wrong way to think about affecting this. We seem to be in the state of a very closely divided electorate, at least by the standard of having a small number of states that are right. very close, that are determinative. Right. The number doesn't vary by that much. If we want to have an enduring coalition that defeats the right-wing MAGA Republican Party that is the big threat of fascism or the like, what needs to be done in order to assure that? Like, what are the moves that we, as a progressive movement and beyond the people who are pro-democracy, need to do? There's not a real podcast answer to that. But I... What are the kinds of things? What, what I, are, what's, I think, what's no, I, I mean, I, I think the, the constitutional system as it's set up now, there is no solution inside the system. What about when you think about the people themselves? Are, do you think that there are issues or categories or places that are better targets for us to bring into that coalition? We know there's people who are going after rural America and trying to raise our our numbers there, the people going after the faith community. Men, like why are we doing so bad about men? Are there efforts that we can make that are geographic or issue-based? Where do we have leverage and potential to broaden our coalition? So I wanna be really very clear in this answer. There are ways for Democrats to do better in elections, but there isn't a version of Democrats doing better in elections that solves the problems we're talking about because the ceiling is way too low. Well, I guess I'm asking, how do we change that ceiling? You can't. The system is set up so that it can't be changed. Well, there are many countries which have moved to a dominant party for a period, especially after an event as egregious as January 6th, or maybe we right. need more here. Is it an event that could change it? No, because going back to the, the especially since um, 2008, where 
Blue America and Red America don't just disagree about things. Over the last 14 years, they've created different ways of living that people have become used to. Different ways of living? Are you talking about like the media ecosystem? That that media ecosystem, but also that, you know, in 2008, say, 2009, whatever, the you might have had a discussion prospectively about what the policy on abortion should be because there was not as much difference around the country. But now you have you know, 18 states where pretty much that's a right women have. We've, and we've gotten polarized around that issue so badly that it's irretrievable. Polarized suggests that I think this and you think that, right? The point I'm trying to make is that we've moved from that to I have this and I have that. What do you mean by that? I don't, I don't what understand. I mean is that that in 2009, if you ask the question, um, should women have like, some version of women having the right to choose, right? You would get like a poll-like division, right? But since then, in many states, that is something women have come to depend on. It's not a question of, like, what should the policy be? It's, will my rights be taken away from me? That's very different. And the same thing, like with guns, say, in Red America, right? We've, like, suddenly in this period, let them all have AR-15s and conceal carry and all of that. And so they might have been willing to accept uh, assault weapon ban when they didn't have assault weapons that had to be taken away. People have created like the the environment they live in that's just so profoundly different. That seems like a profoundly pessimistic view on where we are. Is there anything that's giving you optimism about moving not to a time in the past, but to a future where we are less at each other's throats, less at risk of, you know, flipping so dramatically back and forth in elections, et cetera. A chronic problem in this country is a belief that problems can be solved by ignoring them. That combined with uh, the Constitution, you know, the... Well, I mean, the current administration is trying very hard to solve a lot of problems. They put a whole lot of money into some of the big problems. Uh, Governing is quite difficult. Uh, Yeah. A lot of problems are very intractable. Some are more so than others, right? I mean, I'm not sure we are in a worse situation for our populace than we were 100 years ago, where people were more willing to accept the way we conducted our politics, right? What is it about right now that people are so dissatisfied with institutions and so dissatisfied with politics? What's happened? So I think that it's important to understand that there is no time when our politics really worked. But what I'm saying is not, boy, if we could only go back to this moment. And we've solved some of our crucial problems and we've 
come upon others or created others, right? Well, I'm not sure like with anything major we've solved. I think that well, we've been like ameliorated some things. Well, I mean, yeah, social security has made old age considerably different than before we had that. There are lots of things right. like that. No, but now you're going back to like the, well, like the civil the, rights movement made a lot of substantial right, changes. Right, made changes, but that like I would not say that it's not it, over, and we had backsliding. Right, and yep. it did not solve it. Right, yeah. and the I mean, the, it's what I call the forces of reaction in my intro yeah. to this podcast. Whenever we make progress, we have a reaction sometimes over time that takes us backwards. And it seems like it's an ongoing struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. But it is also true that we are with climate change, with nuclear weapons, we are in a much more fragile position than in a lot of those other times. As a world civilization. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's it pretty was, scary. Yeah. And that the consequences of dysfunction in the United States have like an implication for the whole world that keeps getting more profound. And so the United States not, quote, solving its problems doesn't just affect Americans. And the important thing to round out on that is at that point, people say, well, okay, but we got to think about America. When that happens, we're making our own problems harder because of how people react to us in the world. When you're talking about problems, are you talking about problems in the democracy? Are you talking about economic problems? Are you talking about social problems? So everything. I would argue that the reason, one of the most important reasons why there is so little confidence in our institutions is because people pay attention. And there's like really good reason not to have confidence in these institutions. To what degree is it just because we've been campaigning against our institutions the, politically forever? Like I'm gonna go to Washington, I'm gonna clean up the swamp, campaigning against corruption, t teaching people that the institutions are crap. I wanna make sure it's clear here that I'm not saying that this was a golden age either because there were different problems. But in the United States, really beginning with the Wagner Act and the beginning of the labor movement in the 30s and around the world at a sort of earlier time, if you had two political parties, right, they were organized around labor versus capital. And the Democratic Party in that period was an imperfect, but still an institution in which working people had substantial agency. One of the main reasons why, you know, people who look back and say, like, look at how much support the Democratic Party had from working people and say, why like, can't they do it now? misses the fact that it wasn't about what democratic leaders were doing. It mattered that the role working people played in the Democratic Party. And by the 1980s, and you have in the United States and elsewhere around the world, business figuring out ways to co-opt 
the left party, the working class party, so that you have a duopoly essentially between two parties that in which working people don't have um, the kind of agency that would warrant being a working class party in the way it used to mean. If you're a working class person in this country, neither party actually reflects your economic interests as fully as it did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. I guess I'm curious about your feeling about where we are with the labor movement with respect to politics with that in mind right now. I mean, there's been a decline of the number of people in unions for a long period of time. You've said that it's still a very powerful force, maybe the most important force. There are hopeful things that people talk about right now about positive attitudes towards unions coming back, particularly in young people. And I'm watching unionization in some of the companies and places that I follow. Do you think that this can be turned around? If that's if that is one of your diagnosis and maybe therefore prescriptions for what ought to happen? So first I want to say, like how you, the question is reflective of the problem that I'm talking about, right? You are someone who thinks they support the labor movement and is progressive and such. And yet you talk about the decline in union membership, right? As if there was no antagonist. Oh, I'm well aware. No, you're aware, but, yeah. the, but I'm saying that the way the conversation happens erases the role of all of the businesses that have been working for decades to gut the power of working people, right? The union membership has not declined. The ability to be in a union, to stay in a union, to strike has been systematically under assault for decades. That's the question. It was under assault in the 1940s. I mean, right. It, but, but at that point, that's what I'm saying. At that point, the Democratic Party was on actually grounded in that. You had a willingness to back the labor movement when it went on strike. You had a, an insistence in business coming to the table. You like the NLRB was acting to make sure that unions could thrive. Probably because the labor movement was strong. I mean, it's probably bidirectional. Right. right. No, yeah. but yeah. but and that's why the to talk about the quote decline of the labor movement as opposed to always centering what you would call the forces of reaction is problematic because it like your head goes to a different place and becomes much more pessimistic so how would you ask that question i think that the question is whether there's going to be a greater awareness i I, I don't know that can do this like justice but it's that the where like if i follow this thread of this question back it's like confidence in institutions. And I don't think we get back to confidence in institutions until, again, those institutions are accountable again to those people. Do you think that the current Democratic Party, if we had a few more votes in Congress, would pass things that 
that uh, backed up the unions and helped and was of assistance in in that fight? So uh, I mean, sure, but I think that like you've got the filibuster and you've got the Supreme Court. You know, yeah, right? the Supreme Court may well invalidate. Right, and so else. like right now, one of the cases they heard um, this session already, and they'll decide in June, is a thing called Glacier, where Teamsters go on strike in the process of going on strike, this is uh, cement mixers, and some of the quick-dry cement was damaged. And so the company, Glacier, wanted to sue the company, sue the union for damages. From the beginning of the NLRB, NLRA, and unions, the question of whether or not that could be uh, adjudicated goes first to the National Labor Relations Board, which Glacier didn't do. They tried to sue in state court. And so in the first instance, the idea that unions should be held accountable for economic damage done to their employers is kind of crazy because the whole point of a strike is using leverage to bring them to the table. Yeah. So if you have a ruling that says that unions can be held accountable in court and have to pay damage or even have to litigate this question, you're chilling yeah, the right to strike even disaster more. If it happens. Right. So even not a couple more democratic votes doesn't deal with that if that's a direction they go in, yeah. right? It reminds me of decisions in 1900 to 1910. Right. You know, it's... Uh, right, that's where we are again. Yeah. And so to sort of like put the spotlight in your question on whether Democrats in Congress can get a couple more votes, this is where the real action is. And this is partly a problem with the media where... The most interesting thing to cover is the back and forth in Congress because people are making statements and all of that's it's easy to cover, right? And especially since 2010, that's been one of the least important um, places that affects Americans, right? It's what's been happening in their state legislatures. It's been what the Supreme Court has been doing, and it's what happens through executive actions. And almost all of that happens in the dark and is not really tractable to electoral outcomes. I can see why you would be motivated to keep going with what you do. There's a big fight and you're part of it. Are you ever tempted to like be done with politics? It's such a trying thing in this time. Do you, what's your, what are your plans for yourself as yeah. you keep going? I mean, I mean, this is going to sound strange, uh, maybe, given that as political director of the AFL-CIO and all of these things, but I don't even really think of what I'm doing as primarily politics in the way it's properly understood, mm -hmm. right? It has just been the case that from the beginning of time that there's the powerful and the people that they have power over. That contest is one that I've always believed in being a part of. And it isn't just what's going to happen to the Democratic Party, 
right? Yeah. And then we have... It's what's going to happen to people who are vulnerable. Right. We yeah. have an oppressive neoliberal order that's giving businesses and world capital like much more of an ability to crush people's hope and aspirations and lives. And like that's the fight. It's not a political fight over like electing Democrats. Like that's depending the on thing. how aligned they are. Right. With, no, yeah. the, but the the fight is for the people, not and for being able to act collectively. The elections are just one arena for that. But I can't imagine ever not being part of that. I. If, since I was 12 years old, that's all I'd really done. Well, I think that's a, a good point at which to ask you my exit question. Okay. Even though I would like to talk to you for about a week. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what should I have asked you that I didn't? <laughs> I have no idea. And this has been fairly wide ranging. I had about 100 other questions. Which yeah. I didn't get a chance. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, uh, it gives you a straight flavor of yeah, where I'm coming from. It does. Um, and, and it's an honor to talk to you. Is there oh, anything else you, you want to say? I think mean, it's just important for people to understand that power's never conceded anything except to a demand. And we kind of live in a world where people think it'll concede to a good message. And that's the problem, right? Do you think that someone like Trump understands power in a different way? Than totally, that? yeah. DeSantis? They are, well, no, they all do. The, but it isn't. But the, again, do we have people on our side who understand power that way? I think. To I think that, sure. But the, well, who? the if you're a successful politician on the level we're talking about, you understand power differently than most people who. You think Biden understands it? I think he has a different perspective on it, but he certainly understands better than someone who thinks that you can only do what you get support for in a survey believes, right? Well, and he also has shown a kind of a flexibility around power. I think being a president is sometimes kind of experimental, like Roosevelt. You have to see what works in, in the arena sometimes and react to that. The problem, though, in the way we look at what you just said about they experiment and look at how things right. Yeah. Is that with a North Star, I'm assuming. No, no, no. That not that's yeah. not the point I was gonna make. The problem is that in the public discourse, mm -hmm. the only feedback on politicians' decisions that gets acknowledged and like covered with a microscope is what the reaction is in a survey. And what doesn't get covered is said the reaction in the business community, right? I mean, that is one of the major constraints on policy that is never talked about, right? And so while we like have like daily taking the pulse on non-college voters and what's that all going to mean, I bet, unless you just read something I wrote, Tell me, like, what the trends are in partisan giving by industry in this country. Right. And yet that's... I mean, I could make some guesses, but I haven't studied right. it. Yeah. Right. And yet that's, like, $10 billion an election cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're sort of living... What's the headline there? 
Well, the headline there is that there are kind of three, uh, for like to reduce it here, tendencies. There's a set of industries that, and the thing that's crazy about the people not knowing this and the press not reporting it is it is basically all a click away at Open Secrets, right? I mean, it is just at, like right there out in the open. Yeah. So you have one set of industries that are dominated by the extractive industries like oil, natural resources, all the agriculture, things like that, that sort of this data becomes available in the 90s was like two to one or better Republican giving from the beginning. And when sort of MAGA, Trump, all that has become even more Republican. You have another set of industries that, especially as Clinton and Obama became central, like finance and Wall Street and all of that, that are about similarly democratic and have become even more democratic since Trump. And then you have a set of things in the middle that were never firmly on one side or the other and have been all drifting blue. And so like a great example of that is the healthcare industry, where as Clinton and then Obama tried to pass their healthcare bills, the giving went Republican to beat or to get the best deal they could. And that's reflected in Obama not doing public option, not doing anything with pharmaceutical industry, all of that. Those decisions were made because of that money, not because of what voters wanted or people wanted in the healthcare system. Once it became the law of the land, and it actually was helping the healthcare industry, they becoming much more democratic because they don't want the ACA to go away now. They would be very expensive for them to do it a different way. Right. Yeah. And so now they're trending very blue, right? Because they don't want to see the ACA repealed. So, so who, who was, I mean, that summary makes it sound like maybe things are getting better in the relationship of industry to party at least is is there a category well, that, yeah but except that it also means see that's the thing it yeah. also means, it means that, that democrats have to be more responsive uh, to those I see, industries I see the point. Yep. right yeah the right they're not they're not passive um, and it looks like the republicans in some ways are pushing away from some, certain industries some, yeah or from the chamber of commerce even yeah potentially yeah 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 and but the but again the thing is it's not like the when I say that about the healthcare, right, it's not like they just sit back and say, oh, well, I like you better. It's they get stuff back, it, right? It's interest. Yeah. yeah, and it shapes what the boundaries of what dem capital D Democratic politicians can put on the table. But it's not part of our national conversation about policy or politics or any of those things, right? It's like we just did a Monmouth poll and it said this thing. And so the administration can't do that thing. And we never hear, well, the ex-industry lobby came in and said, like, they'll do a $20 million campaign against whatever. There's a certain number of progressives right now working on the problem of the media ecosystem, trying to figure out how to launch more of a progressive version you're, I'm certain, aware of that. Right. It seems like new media companies could be covering exactly that kind of thing. Do you think that's being conceived of in the 
proposals that are out there. Sure. I think that's the idea. Yeah. Is that something that like the labor movement would consider helping to finance? If we have this problem that you have articulated, people not thinking about things with the right lens, how do we change that? I'm like all analysis and not solution here because like the system set up in a way that is resistant to solution. It's always been resistant to change. The, yeah. So the thing that to understand about the media ecosystems, really sort of broadly speaking, right, is that the reason we have a right-wing media ecosystem is because it's profitable. And so it goes back to that third of the country, right? That third of the country wants to believe they live in the world that Tucker Carlson describes, Right. And what we saw after the 2020 election, you know, Murdoch probably said, we're going to call the election straight. So they actually call Arizona first. Right. And they keep Carlson and Hannity off because at a individual decision level, like there's still some corporate control over what's going on. Every day after the election, they were losing measurable market share to OAN and Newsmax. It it was reported widely. It was very interesting. Yeah. Right. And which is why. Because there was an appetite out there for the denialism. Right. Right. And so, and that's making money. And so, as soon as Murdoch felt like, you know, it was clear after the election was called, they went back to it to get back their market share. They fire some people from the decision desk. They put all these, do more on Tucker because it's a market, right? The other market in this country, from a commercial perspective, right, has essentially been captured by both literally and figuratively the New York Times. The mainstream media. Yeah, right. And their market incentives do not lead to what we're talking about. It will absolutely make things better if these new media enterprises get off the ground. But we shouldn't fool ourselves that the major market, like just the nature of how many outlets you can own in a place and all the different things that used to protect us from the kind of media problem we have now have been lifted. And like- Seems like something that we should go after pretty hard. But all of those problems that we've been talking about are the problems themselves, but they're also reflections of the balance of power in the country. And until there's a way to massively revive collective action in this country, we're going to just be sort of shadow boxing it, basically. In the other interviews you've given of late, you've noted how the anti-MAGA votes made the difference in in the midterm. Can we make that continue to have resonance next election, the election after that? Like, can we wave the bloody shirt long enough on this? Do you think that still has power? My guess is your answer is something like it depends on who they run and how blatant they are about being MAGAists. But what do no, you think? No, actually, I think that that it depends on how the mainstream media and all of them, anybody that they 
could run. Anyone who could win a Republican primary is, if accurately described to the electorate, going to have the same result, right? And the point I was trying to make in observe in the um, what you're talking about the uh, I did about the midterms is that in those places where it was clear to voters what was at stake, they lost. Well, they in, ran some egregious people. But see, the problem is in in think you think it's you think it's about the clarity around see, the, that. But, but stop for a second. Yeah, so, okay, the sentence they ran people, right? Yeah. The problem is you think that there is a sentient there there. Well, there's a there's a ex president making endorsements in primaries. There's but you have a primary electorate. That Which is receptive is to that endorsement, or not to just that, that, or that, to that right? Yeah. But it's more than to that attitude, right? I mean, one of the things that I do that um, I'll recommend, but only if you're like under like physician supervision, oh, no. is um, to watch Fox News. All I do from time to time, right? Yeah, and when you do, you realize in a way that you can't when someone tells you what's on Fox understand that that third of America, whatever it is, is living in a different fundamental reality. And in that reality, we are pedophiles. We are threats to the basic fabric of everything. We are the people who are not in that world are, a, are an existential threat. And if that's the world you live in, you don't accept the people you elect being reasonable, right? Because in that world, you are being reasonable with the devil. That's why Ryan, Boehner, all these people, like, I mean, like in our history, you don't have people who are like Speaker of the House say, fuck it, I'm out of here, right? Because the people that are elected by those people who get their information from the Tucker Carlson's will only elect that kind of politician. It is important because the right the whole boy it would be dangerous if they ran blank, right? Was like illustrated in the aftermath of the 2012 election, right? Where and now it seems quaint but where the understanding was that Romney lost because in the primary he had to go to anti-Latino and all these things to win the nomination. And so you get the autopsy report, which is basically meant to say, chill on going after that part of the Republican base, right? Because we want to win. And that just opened it all up for Trump, right? Because, because everyone else... Everyone was kind, of, yeah, because <laughs> everyone else was kind of, uh, and when you look at sort of the particulars of how it came together, it was basically trying to get the front people who were going to be front runners, the Jeb Bushes, like all of that, to sort of a mutual like that's off limits, yeah. right? We'll compete on other things, and then that meant that it was wide open for Trump to come in and go after that part of the. Because one of the things that 
persuades me along those lines is I think of the boomlets in those years for the Michelle Bachmans, right? For the for the for the looniest candidates, right? Until maybe they seemed like they couldn't win, but you see it over and over, again. right? But then you get to the the whole idea that they're not good candidates, right? So. No question, Mastriano is a disastrous candidate, which explains why he lost by as much as he did. But if you could get, you know, the best campaign consultants to look at Kerry Lake as a candidate and just like not have the actual like policy stuff yeah. heard, longtime, well liked local. She, I mean, the media was portraying her as the probable winner plus like a person of tremendous political skills who, right. who could be the VP or something. Right. Yeah. And that's my point. It's not that they just, they select, can't do air quotes on podcasts. The, you just did. Yeah. <laughs> that they are telling, like they get to decide who's best candidate for the race. But even when they are, right, it's that it's MAGA. When... Trump won in 2016, and everyone was shocked that Michigan was the blue wall crumble, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. All the smart people were saying, this is like doomed for the Democratic Party because Democrats can't appeal to white non-college voters. That's like where the battleground is. That just dominated thinking. And everybody understood from that point on that Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin were the fulcrum of presidential politics, right? So let's see what happened. Those are five states. At that point, there was just one Democratic governor and four of the 10 senators were Democrats. Today, Four of the five states have Democratic governors. Nine of the 10 senators are Democrats. They had no legislative chambers at that point. They now have three. That should make people realize, don't think about the electorate as, oh, non-college, and this is what the median voter thinks and all of that. The fact is that when it's up for a vote, people don't want MAGA to govern them in those states. And when you're clear-eyed about that, it like the world looks a lot different, right? And it and it makes clear what people have to understand. And the reason we have a Republican, MAGA Republican Speaker of the House in the situation is because in California, New Jersey, and New York, the media was not acknowledging that electing Santos was like putting Republicans in charge of the House, right? And so you had way lower turnout in those three states, and that lower turnout was Biden voters, people who come out in 18 and 20, said, well, really, nothing to lose here, right? And there was something. Yeah. If, you, if you're talking about this 33% yeah. MAGA yeah. block, is Fox going to churn it so that there's 34%, 35%, 36%, Who knows? I mean, it, or is it, you know, like, can we convert some of those people? Are they lost because they're in that ecosystem and it's just- Yeah, over? I mean, unless there's something that disrupts the ecosystem, you can't do it on a podcast, but I did this graphic, which looks at control of state legislatures from 1932 to now, and also control of trifecta I made such a chart myself. What you see if you 
organize the states by Confederate or Union, okay, is that from 1932 to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, there isn't a moment in time that the state legislatures in the Confederate states were not Democrat. And you had a mix of things in the Union states. You get the Voting Rights Act. After a few cycles, you start to get split chambers. You start to get some red, some blue. Get to 2010 election, and it's rapidly back to what it was before the passage of the Voting Rights Act, where they're almost all red trifectas. Because they've been able to take advantage of Citizens United, Rucho, Shelby, to recreate the that, right? And so... What that also means is that in those states, you don't really have a viable Democratic Party at the state level to, to be the ones to benefit from, like getting a few of them to be less MAGA. It is an institutional problem in those states, right? So that even in states like Georgia and Texas, which because Atlanta and Houston in particular really boomed in the last 10 years, you have competitive presidential and Senate races, you're nowhere close to being able to flip the Georgia legislature or the Texas legislature, right? They've locked it in for the next 10 years. What that means is that none of the things they've already done to take people's right to an abortion or their voting rights or anything like that, they're stuck. And even in a place like North Carolina, where you get Cooper becoming governor, one, he can't undo anything, right? It, they, they've, and they took away powers, too. Right. But they basically perfected a ratchet, right, which is sort of their whole McConnell strategy. It's like you do whatever you can to undo the New Deal order, the civil this rights revolution, may mean you lose the next national election, but Democrats won't be able to undo it. And then when they can't undo it, they lose the next election and you get to come back and do it again. I, it's, a, it's a rough view of our politics. Unfortunately, it may be altogether too fitting. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we have a brighter future than appears from this conversation, but it's going to be a big fight, isn't it? When hasn't it been? It's always been. Such an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. That was Mike. He's at michaelpodhorzer.substack.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.